Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Hi, this is Todd Furness. Welcome to today's issue of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness, where we try and address complicated problems and uh, in a civil tone. Today, uh, I'm going to be introducing a topic that I call indexing. And indexing is not going to make a lot of sense to you just yet, but hopefully by the end of the podcast, it will. And hopefully it'll be an issue that uh, citizens and politicians and policymakers all, all along or all together will actually try and take on board and address in a, in a useful way. Um, as always, if you like these videos, these podcasts, I encourage you to uh, like them below to to share them if you think it appropriate and to subscribe. And another reminder that a lot of these things I discuss are developed in more detail in my book, The 60% Solution, where it can be found on Amazon and other locations and bookstores near you. So today we're going to talk a little about indexing. And it's kind of interesting to me that the topic of indexing, uh, as written about in my book, is not something that's been tackled by politicians. And also it hasn't garnered any yet. Anyway, I'm hoping this will do so. Uh, any real controversy? Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, what is in, what do I mean when I say indexing? We have a situation right now where we are encouraging people to be on insurance. And for people at the lower ends of our socioeconomic spectrum, we're encouraging people or we're making available to people uh, Medicaid. And Medicaid is a, a single payer system offered by state and federal government to provide health care for those who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. And without getting into the complexities of, of Medicaid in, uh, in specifics, let's talk a little bit about the broader issue associated with Medicaid. So I'm not going to tackle in this conversation the issue of whether single payer is a good idea or not a good idea. If we've uh, established as a government and as a society that we want to provide health care through government funds for those who are uh, otherwise not able to provide that for themselves, then we ought to question ourselves how we do that. We've done that to some extent. But also, what's the off-ramp for doing that? And what do I mean by that? What I mean is, 
if you have a situation where you're providing a benefit from government or an entitlement uh, or a transfer of value from government to an individual, then the question ought to be, what is the lifetime of that? And how can we help people move off of it? Now, we should hope that people aren't permanently on entitlements. We should hope that, or value transfers, we should hope that we can, as a society, provide sufficient opportunity, education, and support for people to move from an entitlement situation to a situation where you are no longer on the entitlement. But what happens with Medicaid is actually interesting. And it's not unlike other situations where we have value transfers or benefits from the government. We have it where you're covered until you make a certain amount of money, either individually or by household. And then what happens is it's cut off immediately. So in Texas, for example, where I am, we have a situation where you're covered for Medicaid until you make about $51,000 a year per household. So, So the question becomes, what happens when somebody comes in and says, hey, I got a raise. I got a raise of 5%. Under most circumstances, that would be welcome news. People would be excited about that. And it would be an acknowledgement of either the time and grade or alternatively that uh, performance was good or that new skills had, be obta- had been obtained. And the idea is that that allows people to move from one place to another in uh, the socioeconomic spectrum. In other words, you move from a position where you have less to a position where you have more, you have more skills, more, uh, more opportunity, better employment situation, et cetera. Well, the problem with that is if you get a raise at $51,000, you no longer qualify for Medicaid. Well, if you no longer qualify for Medicaid, then you have to pay for insurance on your own or you have to pay for your healthcare costs individually and on your own, likely through with cash. And that's just on the assumption that you're not getting health insurance through your employer. Or you may have to pay a portion of your premium, even if it is provided by your employer. So the question becomes, well, how do you handle that? You, in other words, you've made more money than you have in the past from a gross income perspective. But the next question becomes, I'm losing purchasing power because now I have new costs that I didn't have before. And those new costs are the cost of healthcare. So how do we provide people with an incentive to grow their skills, grow their income, and grow their capabilities, grow their opportunities, and move between uh, demographic profiles or, or socioeconomic profiles, if you will. The word I'm trying not to use because it's a word that Americans tend not to like to use is the word class. We're moving from one class to another. So class is broadly uh, a reference point to income and other things. So let's just tackle this issue one step further and say, we want to encourage people to have the ability to move out of or have a diminished reliance upon entitlements or value transfers, want to encourage people to grow their skills, want to encourage people to advance in their jobs and advance in their career. But there are other things we can use to encourage tactically by making uh, the support that I'm going to recommend here in a second to 
also have a beneficial impact on the industry itself. So let's imagine that you said, what current structures exist for us to help people with their healthcare costs? Well, in the book, we talk about uh, flexible spending accounts. We talk about health reimbursement accounts. We talk about health savings accounts. And each of those are slightly different, but the one I advocate strongest is health savings accounts. Now, the reason I advocate self-health savings accounts is because money comes into that account on a tax-free basis. Any income or dividends or capital gains you earn while you've invested that money in its health in the health savings account is retained tax-free. And you can use, in fact, you can only use the funds in the health savings account for health care expenses. So the other really important point about the health savings accounts, as opposed to these other types of accounts, is that it's owned by the individual employee. And what that means is that the individual employee can keep whatever money is in that health savings account and roll it from one year to another, to another, and also give the money uh, to his or her spouse at the end of their life through uh, in, in a, 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 a testamentary exchange or passing, if you will. So we ought to have more flexibility in the health savings accounts generally, and we ought to be able to put more money into health savings accounts generally. That's a separate issue I tackle in the book. But with regard to moving out of or off of something like Medicaid, what I've advocated is that we have an indexing. In, in other words, we ought to encourage people to put money in health savings account, whether they're on Medicaid or not. So let's imagine that the income is only $45,000. Can you put $25 a month into a health savings account? Again, only to be able to be used for healthcare expenses. Again, you wouldn't probably need that if you were going, you need to, you probably wouldn't need to spend that if you're on Medicaid. But when you get to a position where you're off of Medicaid, you would want to be able to spend it. Now, $25 isn't going to get you too far, but I propose that we have a max, a matching or an indexing that is on the order of five or six to one. Let's imagine that it's six to one. So for 20, if you put $25 in, then what happens is immediately you would get a benefit of $6 for every dollar you put in or uh, $150 in addition to your $25. Now, the trick here is under my plan, you wouldn't get any of that money into your, moved into your health savings account if you didn't put the first $25 in. So there's a degree of personal responsibility there that you have to undertake. And it doesn't have to be $25, it can be $10. Whatever you put in, it's matched or indexed. And I would submit that the plan I've put forward also recommends that that index change as you earn more money. So from hypothetically 50 to $60,000 a year, uh, the index may be six to one, but from 60 to $70,000 a year, the index might be five to one. And again, I'm just using loose terms. We haven't done uh, run a whole healthcare economists analysis on this yet, but you see the broad idea where we're matching on a five or six to one basis, every dollar, $1 that's put into the health savings account by the individual. And the idea is that at the end of the year, we'd like to see the individual be able to say, okay, I've now got $2,500 uh, 
or, or more in my health savings account that I can be using for, uh, for my healthcare costs when that time comes. Now, let's say that now you've gone off of Medicaid, but you've still got a health savings account. You haven't spent the money in the health savings account because you've been on Medicaid, but now you're off of Medicaid and you may need to tap, tap, tap into that. The benefit of this is now you're working as a consumer. Now the healthcare needs of the individual are met because the individual is paying for that healthcare directly. That healthcare, uh, the patient themselves is dealing directly with a care provider. And as a result of that, they can negotiate price. They can establish rules. They can establish better information exchange. They can have a much different relationship. And it's beneficial for the provider as well because the provider doesn't have to file claims, doesn't have to figure out which code he's talking about, doesn't have to worry about the timing of the cash payment coming from the insurance company. So there are a lot of benefits for everybody in the market if we can get the consumer nature, the consumerist nature of the relationship between the doctor or the caregiver and the patient to be more direct. I call this privity of contract. And I point out elsewhere in the book that when we use insurance, we're actually involving a whole bunch of players or stakeholders or constituents in that it's one simple transaction between, because what happens is when you as a patient go to see your caregiver, you really don't know who you're dealing with. And what I mean by that is, Yes, you're face-to-face, ideally, with a caregiver, but the caregiver could actually be an employee of a, of a hospital, a clinic, or it could be an employee of an insurance company. So the, that creates a problem. You create, have questions around duty of loyalty. Who do they really owe their duty of loyalty to? Is it to the patient? Is it to the insurance company? Is it to the employer? Is it to the hospital or whomever else? But I think the broader issue is, how do we encourage more direct relationships between patients and caregivers? A function of that is the payment exercise. And when you think about it, payment is a manifestation of a moral bargain. I morally believe that I'm going to pay you this, and it's my responsibility. And as a result of that, you have uh, responsibilities back to me as the patient. I'm your client. I'm your patient. I'm your, your customer, if you will. And so what we need to do is we need to encourage this exchange between caregivers and patients to be more direct. And what I'm advocating is not only do we figure out a way that we can put money into health savings accounts that enables and supports people either in Medicaid or ideally out uh, their migration out of Medicaid so that they can prosper because we want people to be able to move between the classes. We want people to be able to Uh, take advantage of their unique capabilities and skills, and we want them to uh, advance in their careers, and we want them to be able to live the American dream. So a function of that is not uh, limiting them, because I've heard this quite a bit recently, especially recently, as the discussion nationally has been around the supplemental payments for unemployment. And people are saying, well, I can't afford to go back to work because I'm getting more money from government by virtue of the supplemental payments I'm getting on unemployment. I've also heard people say, hey, my tax rates are too high. So rather than give me a bonus, why don't you just change my benefits or give me uh, a step up in my, in my base pay? Because that bonus has different tax implications. So what we want to do is we want to do things that are helpful to people moving 
uh, forwards in their forward in their career. We want to help people move forward in their prosperity, and we want to help people create value and wealth uh, wherever that's possible. So again, to circle back, I'm advocating that we encourage people by supporting them with indexed support payments from the time that they would otherwise get out of Medicaid to the time when they would ultimately have the purchasing power where they are now earning as much as they would have uh, in terms of after-tax purchasing power as they would have had they still been on Medicaid. So that generally tends to be the difference between two times the federal poverty level and three times the federal poverty level. So from roughly 51,000 to roughly 72 to $73,000. So don't get too hung up on the numbers, uh, whether it's 51,000 or $52,000, but depending upon the year uh, is of lesser consequence than the real issue, which is how do we get people to invest in themselves by creating health savings accounts and then funding those health savings accounts with cash from themselves and ideally uh, that are indexed from and, and supported and paid for by state and federal government that goes into the health savings accounts that allows individuals to buy services directly and to pay for those services directly with their care from their care provider. Now, health savings accounts can be used for a number of things. They can be used for uh, buying uh, medicine. It can be used for specific kinds of purchases at your drugstore. And the number of things that are covered are are uh, widely expressed in the IRS tax code. I also give you a pretty good laundry list of things in my book. So I'd encourage you to think about this uh, in that context and recognize that what I'm saying is, is in a way quite controversial because it, what it's doing is saying, I'm advocating for greater government spending on healthcare. Now that's a little counterintuitive from a guy like me probably, but here's why I think that's helpful because I think if we can, if we can encourage that spending to go into a health savings account that's controlled by the individual can only be spent on healthcare and which encourages consumerism, I think that's going to reduce the overall cost of healthcare across the industry. If you look at every other model where we have less government involvement on a direct payment basis, rather than more government involvement, then what we see is prices go down. The classic example of this, for example, in the healthcare industry is cosmetic surgery or elective surgeries, but primarily cosmetic surgery where prices are subject to competition. It's not, it's not uh, uh, funded by health, by health insurance. It's not paid for by health insurance. And so cosmetic insurance, uh, I'm sorry. And so as a result of that, cosmetic surgery has decreased in price pretty substantially over the over the years. I submit that with increased consumerism across all attributes of, of healthcare, then we can drive prices down further. Now, I'll be talking about another component of this overall plan in a subsequent solo podcast uh, in coming weeks, and that is the issue around the taxation of benefits, which is currently, as uh, Devin Herrick put it, a perversion of tax history that's lasted for 80 years. But or tax policy this last for 80 years, but uh, we'll talk about that another time. Right now, I just want to focus on how we can benefit all, how we can all benefit by having healthcare coverage paid for increasingly uh, by individuals directly as consumers of healthcare, uh, 
and to support the movement out of Medicaid into a greater self-reliance and doing so by creating value transfers that are indexed to the amount of money or linked to the amount of money that individuals put into their health savings accounts themselves so that we can create a base of, of, uh, of value or cash that can be used to make those payments. Now, again, the government has already provided us with a mechanism. The federal government has already provided us with a mechanism that encourages this by virtue of the IRS protections for health savings accounts in the first place. Now, in my view, they're still too limited. But the idea is by being able to put money into that health savings account on a tax advantage basis, meaning it's not subject to tax, it actually reduces your pre-tax income, uh, then you have the opportunity to then create some value in that account and again, to the extent that you don't use that money, it grows and you can roll it over from one year to the next. Now, you're limited on how much money you can put into the account overall, but it's unlikely that anybody would be running into those limits uh, if you're just moving off of, of Medicaid. So I'm not so worried about that. We'll worry about that in the later conversation uh, because that's another component of the HSA changes I would like to see made. But as it pertains to this issue, I'm strongly encouraging everybody to think about uh, the issue of moving out of Medicaid and into more and greater self-reliance and self-pay and more consumerism by having the monies that are put in to a health savings account by an individual matched by state, federal, and local government so that they can become greater consumers of healthcare to the benefit of everybody in the healthcare industry. That's all we have time for today. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this. I hope you'll take action and I hope you'll like, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.